Yes, let's talk about the problem of God. Four church, or five churches throughout Topeka um, diving into this really big idea, the problem of God. And I just want to call this out from the very beginning. Um, some of you might think um, that's a little bit of a blasphemous idea, right? Like, since when was God a problem? For most of us, God is the solution to our problems. Um, but we also need to realize that there are people um, sitting around us, maybe watching online, maybe you're related to, you work with, you neighbor with, um, that view God more of, more, as more of a problem because they have questions, they're skeptical, um, they've been hurt by the church or by Christians, whatever it is, um, that, that God is, is, is more of a problem. Um, they've joined the long line of people throughout history that like answers, um, they want to see evidence um, of these things. And even if you're not skeptical, even if you're not doubtful, even if you see God as the solution, I think everyone has questions. Everyone has questions. If, if you've been in church your entire life like I have, or maybe this is the first day for you to darken the door of a church, um, I think everyone has questions. And, and that's a little bit um, a part of my story. I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor for the first 10 years of my life. Um, so I have, I have been a church rat since the very first day. I've just always been around the church. Even when my dad wasn't a pastor, we were involved. And um, youth ministry was a big thing for me in, in my teens. I had a great experience with church, with God, with the Bible. I didn't come into adulthood with, um, with, with any, church, any church hurt at all. So I've always had this sense that God was real, that God can be trusted, um, and it wasn't until my mid-20s through a series of events that I came to the conclusion that I couldn't ride the coattails of my parents' faith anymore, couldn't ride the coattails of my grandparents' faith. I needed to find out why I believed what I believed for myself. I needed evidence for why I believed what I believe. It's partly just my, my personality, just kind of how I'm wired. I want to see the evidence. I want to see the why behind the what. I'd already believed in my heart. Like, like my emotions as a kid and as a teenager were tuned into God. I had plenty of, of those kinds of experiences in my teens. But it wasn't until my 20s that I became intellectually convinced that everything that, that I had felt and believed in my heart was backed up by the kind of evidence that helped me. And so there's this very, very popular misconception in our culture that Christianity falls apart as soon as you begin to question it. Um, that that um, some of you even thought something like this, man, I really hope that my coworkers don't ask me really any hard questions because I don't know how to answer them. Or I really hope that my family members don't ask me any hard questions about God or the Bible around Thanksgiving because I'm not sure how I answer them. Or maybe you've seen um, an atheist debate like a Christopher Hitchens or a Sam Harris debate a Christian on YouTube and you hear some of their objections and you go, I got nothing. Like I don't even know what to say about that. How in the world do I respond to something like that? And again, there's this misconception that, that, that Christianity is just emotionalism or brainwashing or unintellectual. And, and I hope throughout the next six weeks you'll see how I respectfully disagree with that idea. I respectfully disagree and hope that throughout this series, Christian or not, 
that we will get to the point that we shape our beliefs around the evidence. That's actually kind of the whole point of this series for me, that, that follow where the evidence leads, not where you hope it leads. You follow the evidence where it leads, not where you want it to lead. Okay, um, in, in this age of social media and hot takes, we have we we where we have this instant access to information. Too many people get really sold on what they believe and what they think is right to the exclusion of everything else. There's actually a word for it. It's called confirmation bias. Right, like this this tendency to look for arguments or information that support what I already believe. And YouTube will even help you with this. Right, like if you search for videos about Shetland ponies. The algorithm is designed to continue feeding you videos about Shetland ponies, right? I, I had an experience with this just a couple months ago. I wanted to use some of my Christmas money to buy some golf shoes, some new golf shoes. So I got on Google, started doing my research, wanted to read some reviews, all that kind of stuff. For the last three months, every ad in Facebook, every ad on the sides of Google has been trying to sell me golf shoes and it's working. <laughs> I only wanted to buy one pair. I got two brand new pairs of golf shoes, right? So the algorithm, it just goes searching for more and more information to, to feed into what I was looking for. And did you know we, we do this with our beliefs too? We, we go out searching for what we believe is true to, to convince us of what we already believe. So throughout this series, some of what we're going to talk about, it, it might test those beliefs, it might push up against them. Maybe it'll sharpen them. And maybe, maybe some of the evidence might even change what you believe. But, but I, I want you to follow where the evidence leads, not where you hope it leads. That's actually kind of the whole point of, of Mark Clark's book. Now, all five churches that are involved in this Let's Talk series are kind of using the structure of this book. We have our own ideas. We're going to go out of completely different directions and, and different ways. Um, but Mark Clark is the one who wrote The Problem of God, and his story is the exact opposite of mine. He grew up in, in, in Canada. He was um, born and raised in an atheistic home. His parents didn't believe. He didn't believe, and he tells part of his story um, in the book if you want to pick it up and, and read it through. But the book deals with 10 objections to um, the existence of God. We're only going to deal with six of them, okay? The other four churches might deal with some of the ones that we want. We might deal with some of the ones they won't. Um, if you want to get on their website, their YouTube channel, their podcasts, and, and listen to theirs. Um, today's message at Western Hills is actually being taught by a genetic scientist, so you might want to pick that one up. It's going to be way better than what you're going to hear today, okay? Um, but but d figure those out. But here's where we're going, okay? Um, we're going to deal with the problem of science next week, and you two cannot sit this close to me next week. <laughs> Okay, this is Dr. Paul Tracy Wagner. That kid can't sit this close, okay? Um, we're going to deal with the problem of science next week. Um, if you had ever deal with, with people, relatives, friends, that where in the world does, how does this match up? Talk about that next week. Week after that is the problem of hypocrisy. Okay, I can't believe in Christianity because Christians are such hypocrites. I'm going to deal with that that week. Um, after that's the problem of the Bible, what about all the mistakes? And isn't it just a myth that's been handed down throughout the generations? You've heard different things like that. 
We'll go after that um, that week. The next week, Palm Sunday, we'll deal with the problem of evil and suffering. And then, shocker, I know, on Easter Sunday, we're going to deal with the problem of the resurrection, okay? Um, regardless, Easter is a great week for um, us to invite anybody to come sit with us. So that's where we're going to go over the next six weeks. Today is a little bit of an introduction, um, but it's also kind of laying a foundation for where we're going to go for the next six weeks. Um, I want to start by simply talking about the, the arguments for the existence of God, okay? And I want to tackle this um, from the perspective of, is there outside of the Bible, and we're going to look at Scripture here in a minute for a specific reason, but outside of the Bible, outside of Christianity, outside of any kind of theological thought, is there evidence for the existence of God? Like, is that even possible? That's where I want to go today. I want to show you three arguments. There's actually about 10 or 11, um, but I want to show you three arguments uh, for the existence of God. These, these are three arguments that have been around for a long time. They're pivotal um, in, in philosophy. They've been pivotal in philosophy for centuries. Maybe you've heard them. Maybe you haven't, but they're designed to get us thinking about the existence of God, okay? So the first one is called the moral argument, the moral argument. And again, we're going to look at more at this next week. But there are physics, and then there are what physicists call and philosophers call metaphysics. Okay? Physics is the field of science where you're getting into the laws of the universe. Meta is Greek for beyond. So there are some things that take us beyond physics, beyond the laws of the universe. There are some questions that physicists can't answer. And they will admit this because there are some things beyond the laws of the universe. That's metaphysics. That's where you get into the field of philosophy or, or theology. And again, this isn't a new bait. It's been going on for centuries. It had actually been going on for a long time before Jesus even showed up on this earth. And, and there was lots of different thoughts. And the apostle John threw his hat into the ring um, in his first chapter of, of his gospel. So of all the other four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John has written the latest, um, and he takes a little bit more of a philosophical approach to Jesus becoming man. And so I want to just touch real briefly on this because there's some things in here. It's just, there's just layer upon layer upon layer. Um, he was writing to an audience to basically say, hey, for those of you who think about physics, or your mind is, is scientifically kind of, that's just how you think. You, you aren't convinced of God's connection with the origin of the universe. Or uh, for those of you who think it's just a bunch of natural laws, which was the dominant idea in John's day. Here's, here's what I want to show you. That's what, that's what John 1 is. And here's what he writes. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, but if you want to follow along in your Bible or mobile device, John 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. Okay? What do you notice about the word, word? Capitalized. Yes, you guys are awake. It's capitalized. Okay? John was giving a nod to the philosophical thought of his day. Okay? Stoicism is, is enjoying a little bit of a renaissance these days, but this ancient philosophical thought, Stoicism, believed there was a moral force or a set of moral laws behind the universe called the Logos. Anybody want to guess what the word word means in Greek? Logos. 
John is saying the logos has existed from the beginning. That, that the, you want to know what was behind the laws of physics, if you want to know what predated the force you believe created the universe, John says it was the logos. But there's another layer there too because he says in the beginning. That's a nod to Genesis 1.1. So in this short little phrase, John is saying, hey, Hebrews, hey, Greeks, hey, Stoics, even hey, Romans, the one behind the laws of the universe has existed before the laws of the universe. He's pulling in Hebrew and Greek and Stoic thinkers all in this first sentence of the gospel. But he goes on. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. This thing that you thought was some kind of vague, impersonal force behind the universe is actually God. He, he's talking about Jesus, existed in the beginning with God. Jesus is the logos. He's, he's the same as the Hebrew God, he would say to the Hebrews. And God created everything through him. Nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone because the world is a dark place. But the light, it actually shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Again, John's saying, hey, Stoics, you know that impersonal force behind the universe that you believe in? He has a name. It's Jesus. Say, Hebrews, you, you know, we've never seen God and we didn't know what he looked like. He's become personal and he brought light with him. This is, this is John's way of saying to Jewish and Greek and Roman audiences, pay attention to Jesus. But the question still remains. Like some of you hear that and you think, yeah, but where's the evidence in that? Tim, I thought you said you weren't going to use the Bible. Where's the evidence? Well, if you read the rest of John's gospel, if you read the rest of the gospels, if you read from Genesis to Revelation, you would see that scripture suggests our origin is moral, personal, and relational. That the God revealed to us in scripture is moral, like he's interested in how you live your life. He's, um, he's also personal. God wants to know you, and he wants you to know him. He's also relational. In his very essence, God is relationship. He's three in one. God exists as a relationship. He isn't distant and unknowable. He's close, and he can relate to us. The moral argument says... If there is no moral, personal, and relational being behind the universe, why are we moral, personal, relational beings? Because physics can't create morality. Why is it moral creatures have to be made by a moral creator? If everything's random, if there's no moral force behind the universe, why are we moral creatures? Let's look at it from the opposite side, okay? From, from the other side. Evolution, naturalism, and relativism all struggle to explain altruism and kindness to others. It doesn't mean they can't. It just means they struggle to. So a lot of big words, okay? Um, evolution is survival of the fittest. It's making decisions based on your own self-interest. If it helps me to survive, I'll make this choice. That's a really basic summary of evolutionary psychology, okay? Naturalism or determinism says that there is no supernatural. It's all what you can taste and see and smell and, and, and touch. There's no supernatural. And relativism says there's no absolute truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. I'll believe what I believe. You believe what I believe. Okay? Altruism is the idea that humans will go out of their way to, and sometimes even sacrifice themselves for the benefit of others. It's the 
Uh, it's the guy who sees somebody have a heart attack and fall into oncoming traffic and jumps in front of oncoming traffic to save that individual. Why would you do that? If it's, if it's about making decisions to help you continue to, to survive, you shouldn't make that decision. It's, it's firefighters, it's police who run into trouble to rescue someone at the risk of, of, of losing their own life. How do you explain that from an evolutionary naturalist or relativist viewpoint? Because it doesn't help you survive. It's not the natural thing to do. If it's not based in absolute truth, how do you explain altruism? How do you explain that? Or just simple kindness. Um, if you make a lot of money, why would you be generous? Why wouldn't you just keep it for yourself? Because that helps you continue to survive. Why don't you just do what benefits you? And, and why do humans continue to come back to this idea over and over and over that there needs to be something about our lives that isn't about our lives? Where does that come from? Okay, now I'm gonna quote from a very famous evolutionist just to show you where this can go, all right? This is over 100 years old. Some of you will know where this comes from, but let me, let me go there. Man scans with scrupulous care the character and pedigree of his horses, cattle, and dogs before he matches them. But when he comes to his own marriage, he rarely or never stakes any such care. Both sexes ought to refrain from marriage if they are in any marked degree inferior in body or mind. Not given advice for marriage, Okay. Okay? This is just saying, okay, we breed animals to get purebreds because that's the best kind of animal. If you want a gentle dog that hunts well, let's breed these kinds and, and get this, right? He's, he's in, in an evolutionary framework, he's saying, why don't we do this with humans? Okay? This is where the field of eugenics came from. The belief that we could improve the human species by discouraging or disallowing people with any kind of genetic defects or undesirable traits to reproduce. And, and you take it to its extreme, do you know what you get? Nazi Germany. That's what you get to its extreme. So, who said that? Many of you know. Charles Darwin. And the descent of man. And again, we, we read that, so many of us read that, we go, Tim, that was 150 years ago. Like, I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't believe that, which is exactly the point. Why don't you believe that? Why is it that you read something like that and you think to yourself, that's disgusting? The, the, the moral argument says, if there's no moral force, force behind the universe, why are we moral creatures? Why is there something in us that, that says, no, there's dignity in people that aren't perfectly bred? Why do we say, no, we got to take care of the poor and the vulnerable? Why do we send people to Reynosa, Mexico to take care of orphans for a week? Why are you a moral creature? Even if you don't believe everything that I believe, even if you don't believe everything we believe, physics can't explain that. It can't explain the moral force behind morality. This is the argument that actually led C.S. Lewis to become a Christian. He, along with many others, came to the conclusion, wait a minute, this, there has to be something behind the laws of the universe. There's got to be more than this. That's, that's the moral argument in a really tiny nutshell. Okay, then there's the cosmological argument, okay? What does that mean? Um, when you start looking at the combination of science and philosophy and thinking about the origins of the universe, 
The cosmological argument says atheists and theists agreed for centuries that anything that begins to exist has to have a cause. So let's make it practical. If you're a parent, you didn't come home one day and there was a baby in your living room, right? Like babies don't spontaneously appear. You met somebody, you fall, fell in love, got married. There were probably candles involved, my endless love playing in the background, whatever, you know. <laughs> Nine months later, Junior came along, right? Um, if, you've, if you have a business, you didn't wake up one day and just have a business. You started it. You worked hard to get to it. You designed all that stuff. Your car didn't just happen to appear in your garage one day. Started in the mind of an engineer who gave it to a designer, who sent the parts to the factory, who put it together, who sent it to the dealership. That's the idea behind the cosmological argument. And when you apply that to the meta level, the big universal level, where did the universe come from? Where did we come from? And again, for centuries, atheists and theists both agreed everything has to have a cause. Where we disagreed were, theists believed that God was the cause. Atheists believed that it was just the universe. It was just a random act. That all changed about 100 years ago when the Big Bang Theory came onto the scene. Edwin Hubble discovered that the universe had a birthday, had a beginning. And some people think that the Big Bang disproves Christianity. We'll look more at that next week. But in reality, the Big Bang didn't cut the legs off of Christianity. It cut the legs off of atheists. And here's why. Atheists said the universe created us, which means the universe is eternal. It's always existed. hundred years ago, the Big Bang Theory produced a scientifically validated idea that the universe has a beginning. And the theists said, that's what we've been saying for centuries. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. In fact... Um, the, it was atheists who struggled with the Big Bang Theory. Again, because the question became, how do you explain an infinitely complex universe that came from nothing? The universe had a beginning. How? The universe had a... Who? Right? Where did it come from? Let me, let me show you what somebody way smarter than me said. Francis Collins is the director of the Human Genome Project. He's in charge of a group of scientists who mapped the human genome. Okay? And again, he started as an atheist... And through scientific process and discovery, he came to the, the conclusion, wait a minute, there's something here. And in his case, that something led him to God. Here's what he writes, the guy responsible for mapping the human genome, the Big Bang, cries out for a divine explanation. It forces the conclusion that nature had a defined beginning. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force that is outside of space and time could have done that. And that's exactly what theists have said for centuries. Again, we'll come back to this more next week, but that's the cosmological argument. If there's a beginning, who caused it? All right? Third argument, we're going to fly through this. It's what's called the evidence of design. And there is a microscopic level and a telescopic level. Okay? So at the microscope level, an amoeba, it's a single cell, has enough structured and meaningful data to fill 30 encyclopedias. If you're under 25, ask your parents what an encyclopedia is after church. <laughs> right? This is what Francis Collins found when he started mapping the human genome. He found a world inside of a world inside of a world inside of a world. It's intelligent. It's coded. 
And it all works together. Where'd that come from? Like, like where, who did that? Okay, that's the microscope level. At the telescopic level, the big level, you have to ask who or what created the laws of physics. The laws of physics explains everything we see, who or what created them, who or what brought them into being, and why are there laws at all? What's the point? Where's, what, like, which, is, which is where metaphysics takes over because physicists will tell you there's things that they can't explain. Mark points this out in this book. This just blew my mind. I'd never seen this before, right? Here, he says this. So the probability of the universe coming into being is 10 to the 138th power. That's 10 with 138 zeros. That is an astronomical number, okay? That makes winning the lottery next week easy in comparison, okay? How big of a number is that? He says the number of atoms in our universe is 10 to the 70th power. All the atoms in the universe is 10 to the 70th, but the probability of our universe coming into existence is 10 to the 138th. Power. Let me, again, just read what one physicist said of this about the universe. If the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million millionths, that's tiny, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size into a hot fireball. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are religious implications. Who said that? Stephen Hawking. So, so again, why would there be religious implications? Because there are some things you can't explain. There are some things beyond physics. Where did the laws of physics come from? They wouldn't have already existed because they couldn't have come into existence at the Big Bang. Who or what created them? And the physicist actually asked that question. His response was, physics doesn't yet have its Darwin, so I don't know. In other words, physics doesn't quite have its origin story yet. To which theists, to which Christianity would say, yes, indeed. And one day, it will all be revealed. So, I just gave you way more information than you even wanted, but let me try to make it simple, okay? <laughs> this is a book, right? Um, 250 pages. Every page is the same size. Um, there are words that are organized intelligibly that seem to make sense. Um, there's design on the front. These aren't just random molecules that have just kind of formed here. Um, this tells me that there was an author, this tells me that there was a designer. This tells me there was a publisher. No rational human being would say, well, that just kind of came into existence. No, we believe there's an author. We believe there's a designer. We believe there's a publisher. And the universe is infinitely more complex than this book. Right? So here's what I want you to do. I just want you to follow where the evidence leads, not where you hope it leads. And that may challenge some things. That might confirm some things. It may mess some things up. That's okay. Ask good questions. Do the research. Figure out what people way smarter than you are saying. That's what I just did. 
I just showed you what people way smarter than me have said about this. And we're going to do that throughout this series. But again, all I want you to do, follow where the evidence leads, not where you hope it leads. And next week, we'll jump in to the problem of science. Hope you come back. See you then. Have a great week. You're dismissed.